Indictment number four ahead of debate number one. Buckle up for this week. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis brings the total number of criminal counts facing Donald Trump to 91 and gives him until this Friday to turn himself in. I'll ask George W. Bush's former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez all about that new indictment and whether Trump should serve time in prison if he's convicted. Plus, breaking news out of the classified documents case about what Mark Meadows is reportedly telling the feds. Our in-house law firm of Katiel and Weissman is standing by with reaction to that. And later, the frontrunner plans to skip the first debate on Wednesday night and sit down for an interview with Tucker Carlson instead. Republican candidate Will Hurd is here to talk about how to take on Trump in advance of what's shaping up to be the weirdest, wildest debate week ever. With each passing week, with every new indictment, we're learning more about the kind of country that Donald Trump tried to turn us into after the 2020 election. A country, in his mind, where democracy is no longer the guiding principle, where votes can be found even when they're not earned, where the Justice Department can be used to keep a failed leader in power. But with each new indictment, the latest out of Fulton County, Georgia, we're also learning more about the kind of country that, in the face of all of that, has so far survived. We're learning more about the country we still are, a country where equal justice under law isn't some lofty hypothetical, but actually means something, or kind of means more than anything. Donald Trump continues to learn that lesson the hard way. After that grand jury in Fulton County indicted him and 18 co-defendants this week over an alleged conspiracy to overturn the election results in Georgia, he is now facing a whopping 91 felony counts in total, 91. With a Friday deadline for all of these defendants to turn themselves in, next week means a trip to the Fulton County Jail for the former president. And according to the sheriff, it also means a mugshot. That will be a first in this summer indictment tour. And right now, Trump seems worried in a way that is sort of unusual for him, at least publicly. We don't know what he does behind the scenes. After promising for days he would hold a major news conference tomorrow on Monday to finally unveil those apparently irrefutable claims of election fraud, he canceled citing the advice of his lawyers. Just think about that for a moment. So for Donald Trump to back out and openly admit he did anything at the request of his lawyers, well, one, that's a new thing, but it can only really mean one thing. He's scared. And frankly, he should be. So he's trying everything he can from the old playbook, just dusting it off, to try and delay any trials, distract, and of course, his favorite paint the prosecutors who have charged him as political actors out to get him. But here's the thing. His current legal predicament is not entirely the result of individual prosecutors. They're simply doing their jobs. It's not the result of partisan politics. Most people testifying against him are Republicans, MAGA Republicans, many of them. It's the result of his own conduct. My first guest today was the attorney general for George W. Bush, and he is pleading, pleading with his fellow Republicans to at least consider that the problem may rest with Trump and not the prosecution of him for his alleged crimes. Go figure. It's worth repeating. Trump is in this situation because of the actions he, he himself took as president. He is here because four different grand juries made up of ordinary citizens, as they always are, decided there was enough evidence to indict him on 91 charges. And even as he looks down that long barrel of the months ahead, Trump's fate is not up to one judge or to the special counsel or even to one district attorney. It's up to the ordinary citizens who make up the juries in his cases. 
Citizens returned these indictments as part of the grand juries. Citizens will decide on his guilt. Those are the people who will have the final say. That is equal justice under law. And that is exactly how the system is supposed to work. Joining me now is former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. He served under President George W. Bush. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon. So I wanted to start, you've been outspoken about how the Department of Justice is not biased against Republicans. Uh, what should people understand about the judicial process and the protections that are in it to kind of prevent that political bias, who maybe haven't worked at government at a high level or even a lower level? Yeah, I think that people need to understand that just because the facts of one case look similar to another case doesn't mean that the that there is going to be a prosecution. Uh, and um, people need to understand that the differences are based upon facts. Treatment of cases are based upon the facts and upon the judgment and experience of a prosecutor. You may have, in one case, a prosecutor who's very aggressive and is willing to take a chance on uh, being aggressive in a prosecution. And another case with similar facts, you may have a prosecutor that's less experienced or perhaps a little bit more conservative. And so the fact that you have may have a prosecution in one case and, and not a prosecution in another case doesn't mean at all that there's bias. In this latest indictment in Georgia, Trump and 18 others are charged under the RICO Act. Uh, you've said you thought that the district attorney, Fannie Willis, did a good job laying out the case. You've also said that you think there's a good possibility that some of the other defendants could flip and become cooperating witnesses, which is often a part of the process. If you're not a lawyer, you don't always know that. But as you look at this, who specifically do you think would be the most likely to do so? And who, who do you think she would be most likely to go after? Well, what I don't know is the kind of information that a particular witness, the, the prosecutor thinks, uh, has key information, key evidence that may be supportive of a point that is otherwise the, the prosecutor has concerns about getting into court, getting into uh, evidence in the court. So it, it's, it's hard for me to, to really gauge. Typically, it's going to be someone who is wrapped up in a major conspiracy like this, in a major case, but is charged in a lesser offense and really just kind of wants to get out of this. And so I think that's who you're going to be looking at, and that's who the prosecutor is going to be looking for. But again, it's going to be based upon the kind of information that that, that prosecutor believes that witness may have that is vital, could be critical to the sexual prosecution in this particular case. There's also this argument uh, that some Trump allies and, and also uh, individuals who have been indicted are making that Fulton County is not the right venue for this case and should be brought in federal court. You've said you think Mark Meadows, who's the former White House chief of staff, has the strongest argument to have the case moved. Would that there's also rumors that Donald Trump himself could make that case and make that request. Do you also think he would have a strong case to make, given he was a sitting president at the time? Well, uh, again, uh, y yes, their argument can be made. I, I don't believe that it'll be uh, it'll be at the same strength that Mark Meadows' uh, case will be. But I but I anticipate the president is going to do everything that he can to get this prosecution moved to federal court because I I, I just think that uh, the treatment will be better. I think he also is concerned about, quite frankly, if there is a successful prosecution. He probably doesn't want to go to a state prison. He probably would rather be in a federal facility uh, where his uh, status as a former president of the United States might give him additional benefits. And so, yeah, I think he really would like to get into, into the federal courts uh, and, and leave Georgia behind. 
One of the things that stuck out to me in reading these indictments, I'm not a lawyer, but I did serve in government for two presidents, were the, the ways in which Jeffrey Clark, who was a Department of Justice official, tried to use the Department of Justice and other officials to overturn the will of the people in the election. I mean, you've been a very vocal defender of the institution and the people who work there. What was your reaction when you read about his actions and his efforts? Well, uh, astonishment and anger. Um, uh, the fact that he would use that position, that power, uh, in order to further this this ac action, ac uh, wishes of former President Trump. Uh, you know, it's uh, that is what hurts the institutions when you have that kind of conduct that's not based upon the rule of law, that's not based upon expectations about how the department should conduct itself in terms of any kind of investigation or prosecution, and which is to be fair. Uh, you want to hold people accountable, but you want to be you want to be uh, as fair as possible in making decisions with respect to individual conduct. You've said on this network there should be cameras in the courtroom for the federal trial. There are a lot of people who, of both parties, who agree with you. Many Democrats, certainly, but, but certainly Republicans as well. It's a decision that would be ultimately be up to the chief justice, John Roberts. Uh, I don't know how well you know him, but I assume you know him a little bit. What's your assessment of whether or not that's something he might consider or seriously consider or ultimately agree to in this case? Well, I, I, I've said in the past that I might consider cameras in the courtroom for this case, but generally, as a former judge, I, I just I don't I don't really favor cameras in the courtroom because I think it does affect behavior. Uh, and I think attorneys case, in this case, yeah. yeah. Well, and and the reason why this case is different is because this is a case again against charges are uh, conduct against democracy against the American people, and so the stakes couldn't be higher. The other reason I think that perhaps in this case there should be cameras in the courtroom is because there is already a, a great deal of doubt in certain segments of the American population about about our criminal justice system, about the rule of law. But if they see on camera that Donald Trump has received a fair trial uh, and he is convicted based on the evidence by 12 impartial jurors, perhaps people, those, those supporters of Donald Trump and critics of the Department of Justice will be satisfied that, in fact, justice has been achieved. Now, of course, that puts a great deal of pressure upon the Department of Justice to get it right, but I have confidence that they, that they can do that. But so those are the reasons why I think in this case, uh, the Chief Justice might consider cameras in the courtroom, again, because of what's at stake uh, and because um, it might be reassuring to the American people. The outcome might be reassuring to the American people. Either way, whether, whether acquitted or convicted, I think if they have confidence that they've observed the trial, that the prote uh, constitutional protections have been provided to this defendant, I think that they'll be satisfied. One of the big questions out there, and you have been a big defender of uh, equal treatment, equal justice under law, everybody being treated the same, is if Donald Trump is convicted and sentenced to serve time, should he go to prison despite being a former president? I know we're getting ahead of where we are at this moment, but what is your view on that in general? You're right. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. Uh, I, I'm not, I haven't really thought about it. Um, I, I, I think he should, if in fact he's convicted of the crimes uh, charged by uh, Jack Smith and the Department of Justice, yeah, I, I think he should serve time, quite frankly. Look, there are people 
that on January 6th, I went to the Capitol, uh, maybe not at the clear direction uh, of President Trump, but certainly uh, he did nothing to stop what happened that day. They're serving time. And so if, in fact, the, uh, the crimes, that, uh, if, in fact, Jack Smith is successful in prosecuting Donald Trump for the crimes uh, that he's charged, I, I think it would be fair that he, that he go to prison. But we're a long way from there. Former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks, Jen. Our in-house law firm of Neil Katiel and Andrew Weissman joins me next to talk about what Fonnie Willis needs to do to get some of these co-defendants to flip and what one Trump ally is reportedly telling the feds in another investigation. And later on in the show, former DeKalb County DA Gwen Keyes Fleming on all of the things that make the Georgia case so different from all the others. Plus, Republican presidential candidate Will Hurd on how Trump's rivals should be going after him ahead of the first Republican debate on Wednesday. We're just getting started today and we'll be right back after a quick break. There seem to be a few key things to know in order to fully understand Donald Trump for those of us who have been watching him for a long time. One is that he demands unwavering loyalty. He craves it. He craves it from the people surrounding him. At the start of his presidency, just seven days into his term, he infamously pressured former FBI Director James Comey to pledge loyalty to him. Trump's obsession with who was loyal or disloyal was a fixture of his four years in office. It dominated the behavior of a lot of people who worked for him, and it produced a never-ending stream of headlines like these. The second thing to know is that as much as Donald Trump demands loyalty from other people, people who work for him, people around him, he gives it to basically no one. Just ask Vice President, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. Through years of scandal, Pence literally and figuratively stood behind Trump, no matter what he said or did. And in return for all these years of steadfast servitude and loyalty and standing, Donald Trump watched and did absolutely nothing when the January 6th mob stormed the Capitol chanting, hang Mike Pence. Trump is even letting the people who actually did faithfully carry out his scheme hang out to dry. Apparently, in true form, Donald Trump isn't paying his bills and stiffing the lawyers he sent around the country to do all of his dirty work, including the most loyal of them all, Rudy Giuliani. It is that one-sided understanding of loyalty that makes the new indictment out of Fulton County so interesting because the Georgia case may test Trump's ability to maintain the loyalty of his foot soldiers in a way that we haven't seen before in these other cases. Unlike the more narrow federal indictments, this Georgia indictment is sweeping and targets Trump and his co-conspirators in one large RICO or racketeering case. The former president is just one of 19 defendants. If you're doing the math there, that's 18 other people who could feel pressure to cut a deal with prosecutors. That's also 18 people who can't rely on the possibility of a Trump second term for a pardon because no president has the power to pardon himself or anyone else for state crimes. Meaning that the Georgia case is uniquely designed to publicly stress test how deep some of these loyalties lie. Joining me now is the law firm of Katiel and Weissman, which is on permanent retainer for our show. Hopefully they agree to that. Neil Katiel is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General, and Andrew Weissman is the former FBI General Counsel. So, Andrew, I wanted to just start there with the witnesses, because there's if, if you're one of these co-defendants, co-defendants, and they do decide to make a deal with prosecutors, how, what, how does that actually work? And is the target of all of that Trump, or could the target also be other high-level co-defendants? So in terms of the targets, it could be both. 
um, and, you know, you're in for a penny, in for a pound. You can't pick and choose. If you cooperate, you have to tell the truth, the good and the bad, about everything that you know, whether it's about yourself or about any other crime that anyone else committed. You can't say, mm -hmm. by the way, I'm going to tell you about my friends, you know, I'm going to leave that out, but I'm going to tell you about my foes. You also have to cooperate fully at the state and federal level. Um, so this is where Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith align in interest. Mm -hmm. And Jack Smith is really helped by, for the reasons you stated, Jen, by Fonnie Willis's charges, because those are not pardonable. So um, those are extra weight on people like Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, uh, Jeff Clark, uh, Cheesebro. Those people now are feeling the pressure to cooperate because they cannot hope for a presidential pardon to get them out of trouble. So it sounds like, and I didn't know that before, Andrew, that if somebody participates and, and flips, I should say, in the Georgia case, that could be helpful to the federal cases. So, Neil, let me ask you, as you're looking at this list of 18 co-defendants, who poses the largest threat to Donald Trump on that list? Well, I think it is all of the above. It's hard to say. I think any mm -hmm. of the, if lawyers for any of the 18, Jen, I think would be advising their client right now to think seriously about flipping and providing evidence because you don't have the ability to kind of, uh, you know, uh, hope that you're going to get a pardon from the president or from some Republican president in the future. So, you know, I'd be looking first at Rudy Giuliani, who's been obviously steadfast and loyal to this point, but Trump isn't paying his bills. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously going to create some problems. And he has a lot of exposure. I would also say Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, who's kind of da danced this dance for a long time about mm -hmm. avoiding uh, avoiding charges, uh, you know, by some somewhat cooperating with the feds. He's, I think, being called in Georgia in a much more dramatic way because he's indicted. Uh, Ken Cheesebro, you know, all of these people are rich targets. So speaking of Mark Meadows and his dancing, uh, just to, to keep going with Neil's analogy there, there was a new report this morning, Andrew, that Mark Meadows told prosecutors he didn't remember Trump declassifying documents in the Mar-a-Lago case. I don't know how important that is, so let me ask you that. But also, what does that tell you or what do you read into that about his willingness to cooperate in the other cases where he's a witness in many of them? Well, this is like the big mystery is exactly what's happening with Mark Meadows and this sort of Sphinx-like character where I think, as Neil correctly says, he's trying to sort of have it, you know, both ways, where he sort of gives some information, hoping that if he sort of partially cooperates, he won't get federally charged. Um, he clearly is giving some information to the feds. He is reported to have said that he offered to help Donald Trump go through his boxes and return the material that needs to be returned and that Donald Trump rebuffed him. Um, so that's clearly coming from Mark Meadows. But at the same time, uh, there's information that came out that he basically removed very damning evidence from his mm -hmm. book, uh, where it now is very anodyne, where the initial draft was really much more damning. And that seems to be coming more from the ghostwriters who would know that side of the story. I think this is definitely more to come. I think that both Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith are basically going to be telling Mark Meadows or have told him, you either are a defendant or you are a cooperator who has pled guilty. But it's one or the other. You can't can't be both. So just to, to pick off of that mention of the book, because there was a new report Andrew just referenced about an earlier version of Meadows 2021 book mentioning the episode of Bedminster where Trump showed classified war plans to Meadows publicists and ghostwriters to give more meat to the bones there. 
Neil, and then it, it report, the report suggests that he personally edited it out because he didn't believe at the time that Trump would have possessed a document like that at Bedminster. I, I will leave judgment on that out there for a moment. But, Neil, could he be in trouble for that? Is, is that something that, um, you know, he could face legal issues around? It's certainly possible. So as the reporting says, basically, the ghostwriter for Mark Meadows saw this four-page highly classified document at Bedminster. And that that was in the initial description of the book and the initial draft, and it's been removed. Now, it could be removed because Meadows says, I didn't actually think that was true. Um, seems implausible, given all of the evidence we already have about that four-page document. And remember, that is part of the basis. Uh, it looks like it's the same document that was the basis for Jack Smith filing new charges against Donald Trump just a couple of weeks ago. But I suppose he can try and say, look, I just didn't believe that that was actually accurate. I didn't see the document, so I didn't want to put it in there. But it sure seems like it's a cover-up, uh, Jen. And so I do think that creates the risk of additional exposure for Mark Meadows. The other piece of the story that Mark Meadows is saying there was no standing order for the declassified, for to declassify documents, I think is not all that surprising. I mean, none of us who've you know, dealt with classified information, thought there would be such a standing order. So it's kind of like basically discovering that there's sugar in dessert. Uh, yeah, we all <laughs> knew that. Um, but it's helpful at the end of the day to have, you know, President Trump's former chief of staff say, no, there was no standing declassification order. You heard it now, sugar and dessert, and also there was no standing order. Uh, Andrew, I wanted to ask you before I let you guys go about this report. I mean, Trump was supposed to have a press conference uh, tomorrow to reveal all of this damning information. We all, I think, suspect it didn't exist. He then canceled cited, citing his lawyers. What did you think of that? Do you think he's finally listening to his lawyers or, or what made him decide that now? Well, the idea that Donald Trump has, as he put it, irrefutable, that's his term, evidence uh, that the election was stolen, but he just decided he's not going to tell you what it is. I mean, that's just completely laughable, whether it's on a legal advice or not. I mean, since when does he listen to lawyers? I mean, look at the Mar-a-Lago case where he completely didn't listen to the lawyers saying this stuff has to be turned over. In fact, he is charged with lying to his lawyers. Um, I do think that he is listening to his counsel. And I think for at least the immediate term, there's a reason, because he is about to be arraigned in Georgia. A bail determination needs to be made there. Uh, in addition, Judge Chutkin is about to, in the federal D.C. case, decide on the trial date on August 28th. And I think his lawyers had to say, look, for the moment, zip it up. Like, you do not do anything that's going to provoke a judge, because mm -hmm. you know what? You are no longer the president of the United States. You have four judges overseeing you. Um, you are in a precarious position right now. Neil Katyal and Andrew Weissman, thank you both for putting me on your fee sliding fee scale. I appreciate it. <laughs> Up next, why this Georgia case is sort of Donald Trump's worst nightmare with a prosecutor who knows Fonnie Willis well. And later, we know that Ron DeSantis' debate strategy is to defend Donald Trump because a memo from his super PAC got posted online. I've got some thoughts about the bizarre alternate reality candidates like him are living in right now. We'll be right back. So for a while, this case was kind of under the radar with all the focus on the federal level. But Georgia is so bad for Donald Trump for so many different reasons. First of all, Trump is facing state, not federal charges here. And the president cannot pardon anyone for state crimes. No president can. 
So you know that nagging worry you might have in the back of your head, even, maybe even right now, that if Trump is reelected, he could simply wave a legally questionable wand and pardon himself and any of his loyal fellow conspirators as well for all of his crimes? Well, he can't in Georgia. The governor can't either. Georgia is one of a handful of states where pardon authority is up to an independent board. And the board can't even consider a pardon until at least five years after a person completes their sentence. Also, this is for uh, this is far from District Attorney Fonnie Willis's first go at bringing charges under the RICO statute. This is the 11th RICO indictment brought by her office since she became district attorney and just one of many RICO cases she's prosecuted over her career. Cases that were complicated and broad and both scope and number of individuals charged. And in Georgia, that statute is uniquely broad and carries stiff penalties. Reading through the indictment, it seems like there's a possibility Trump might see some of those stiff penalties. We'll see. Uh, because in Georgia, if you lie to state officials about important facts and matters they oversee, you risk prosecution. And in Georgia, Trump is on tape doing just that. As we discussed earlier, there are also 18 co-defendants indicted alongside Donald Trump. That's 18 possible chances for someone to flip on Trump and help themselves and the prosecution. And finally, Georgia law requires cameras in the courtroom. So unlike the other cases Trump is facing, the public will get a front row seat to this one. So yeah, this case is different and not necessarily, not at all actually, in a good way if your name is Donald Trump. Joining me now is someone who knows a thing or two or actually many, many things about Georgia law. Gwen Keyes Fleming is the former district attorney in DeKalb County. Thank you so much for joining me here on set today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I want to start with this because you know Fonnie Willis. You knew her years ago. Um, and this is the 11th RICO uh, case that her that has been charged since she became district attorney. Why is that important? And what do you think she could take from her experience prosecuting these cases? Well, certainly any time that you've handled a similar case before, you have lessons that you've learned and you carry them into the next case. And so now she has done this not only personally in her own career. She's come up from a, being a younger prosecutor to mm -hmm. obviously now being the elected D.A. But even in her short term as D.A., you see that she has indicted at least a 11 other cases uh, using this methodology. And it's a fantastic tool for Georgia prosecutors that have a complex set of facts with multiple defendants, but you can tell that they are all working together. And the Georgia RICO statute allows you to tell the whole story as opposed to just bits and pieces that might underline specific crimes that are listed in the act. One of the big questions out there always in legal cases um, is the timeline. And uh, while District Attorney Wells says she wants a March 4th trial date, Governor Kemp says there's no way this trial happens before the election. You obviously are not determining when the trial date is, but help us understand how does that actually work and what do you think is kind of a vi viable time period here? Well, and let's remember that she has been investigating this case since she took office in February 2021. So if she said anything other than she is ready to go to trial, I think others would have criticized her. All of that due diligence, all of that time, all of that deliberateness in the prep, in the investigation indicates or has now made her ready to go to trial as soon as March 4th, just a little bit uh, more than six months from now. Whether that happens or not really is up to the judge. And so you will now start to see as defendants turn themselves in, either later this this week or, God forbid, if some have to be arrested, uh, we'll get to an arraignment. The judge will start setting the schedule for motions and other hearings and things. And then we'll see how close to March we actually are able to strike a jury. What is appealing? What works for a judge in this case? For I mean, the defendants, they're going to want to delay. We've seen that in all the other cases. 
what is an effective argument they could make to a judge? Well, I think when you have a, a, a charge like this that's against the public order, that is something that the judge is going to want to ensure that the citizens and the residents of Fulton County are— um, their interests are protected. I think also the fact that you have at least alleged an individualized victim in Ruby Freeman uh, also may be influential to the judge in terms of bringing closure to all that she has experienced. Judges are always balancing the ex expediting a case along with defendants' rights, though. And so, obviously, as you hear from defense counsel about how much time they will need to review discovery— how much time it will take to go through the witnesses. All of those things will come into play in the judge's ultimate decision on and timing. Another big question those of us non-lawyers have been trying to wrap our heads around is this change of venue argument, right? So Mark Meadows has so far asked, requested to move it to federal court, which would make it in northern, northern Georgia, different jury pool. Others may do the same. Aside from having a different jury pool, what advantages or why would these defendants want it to be in a federal court as opposed to uh, a Georgia court? Well, removal would allow them to uh, avail themselves of certain federal defenses. Maybe they'll try an immunity defense. I think the other thing, too, is as as of late, there are no uh, cameras in federal court. And so it uh, the state system has a lot more transparency for the ordinary citizen to see what's happening on a daily basis. And so while uh, Mr. Meadows and presumably others are seeking this removal, I think we need to see what the DA is going to say in her reply brief. I think there might be arguments to the effect of uh, anything dealing with elections is outside of both the president as well as the chief of staff's realm. Uh, in the indictment, it alleges that Mr. Meadows offered to use Trump campaign resources to expedite some of the counting in Cobb County. As you know from your service, that may present Hatch Act violations, so it really raises the question as to whether that's part of his federal role. And so you'll see different arguments to, to demonstrate from the DA to demonstrate that these actions were not part of the federal job duties and therefore the case should be remanded back to Fulton County. Very quickly before I let you go, as we're all just trying to expectation set for people, including people watching, there are 19 people charged here in this RICO case. A number of them could be convicted, including Pre President Trump. Could, is it possible that individuals not Trump could be convicted and serve prison time and he could not serve prison time? And even if he's convicted, is that all up to the discretion of the judge? That's all up to the judge. And it's really based on the evidence that's presented at trial. Thank you so much for joining me. I learned a ton. I've always wanted a law degree. Now I have a little bit. I'm a little bit closer. appreciate you joining me today, Gwen Keyes. Thanks Fleming. for having me. Coming up, the first Republican debate is shaping up to be totally normal. You know, other than the fact that the four times indicted frontrunner isn't going to show up and has to turn himself into jail this week. And later, presidential candidate Will Hurd got booed loudly for attacking Trump at an event in Iowa last month. This weekend, he got some applause. I'll ask him if he's sensing a shift out on the trail. We're back after a very quick break. Republican presidential candidates have been in Iowa a whole lot lately, shaking hands, making rounds at the state fair, eating corn dogs and fried Twinkies, which I can confirm both of those things are delicious. These candidates have been giving stump speeches and prepping talking points on the economy and healthcare and foreign policy, all the things you typically do. They've been doing all these things that candidates normally do in the run-up to the first debate of primary season. And wouldn't you know that this weekend, lots of them were in Atlanta. Yes, that is Fulton County, sitting down for interviews with conservative commentator Eric Erickson, talking about things like immigration, education, and China. 
Of course, that's all happening in some sort of weird alternate reality. One in which a frontrunner who's facing 91 felony counts and will be out on bail in four different jurisdictions by the end of next week isn't ahead by a mile. A CBS pullout this morning has Trump with 62 percent support. We know that Trump is unlikely to show up to the debate in Milwaukee on Wednesday night. He's planning to skip it and put out a video of an interview with Tucker Carlson instead on the platform formerly known as Twitter. As just a side note on that, I think that may be a little substantially overestimated in terms of the impact by Trump and his team. But that aside, to quote the still employed Fox News anchor who's moderating the debate, Trump is still, quote, sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Of course he is. And yet Ron DeSantis's strategy, as outlined by a leaked memo out of his super PAC, is to defend Donald Trump and attack Vivek Ramaswamy. I don't think that's where he thought he would be at this point. Like I said, it's a bit of an alternate reality. The point is, this is not a normal primary. This is not a normal election year. Donald Trump is everything but a normal frontrunner. But most Republican candidates are, for a variety of reasons, choosing not to make that point. Former Texas Congressman Will Hurd is one of the few speaking up, and he joins me next. In a very large Republican field, there have been few candidates as outspoken about Donald Trump as former Texas Congressman Will Hurd. And the reaction out on the trail to those attacks seems to be shifting a little bit. Take a look at these clips from Iowa, about a month apart, and see if you can spot the difference. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect... I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Listen, I know the truth. The truth is hard. Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, period, full stop. And he lost it. He lost it because he failed to grow the Republican brand into the largest growing groups of voters. Joining me now is former Texas congressman and Republican presidential candidate Will Hurd. Well, there's quite a contrast in those two clips I just showed. So I wanted to ask him, and you were booed off stage in Iowa about a month ago for criticizing Trump. But on Friday, as we just saw, you got some cheers for doing exactly that. Are you noticing a shift out on the trail uh, and how people are receiving you? Well, well, Jen, I, I, I want to make one slight correction to, to what you said. I didn't get booed off stage. There was still a few folks <clears throat> at that event that clapped, and there was a lot more people that didn't, and it was the end of my speech. Um, but here's what happened. The next day I was at the airport. People said, hey, thank you. Uh, when I was walking around the Iowa State Fair, a lot of people were patting me on the back and said, thank you for being honest. And, and, and so, so yes, I, I feel a, a, a t it's, things are improving and changing. Had a great time in, in Des Moines uh, yesterday or this, this week at the Iowa State Fair. And, and what people want is someone who's willing to be honest. What people want is folks that are not afraid of Donald Trump and who's going to articulate a vision for a future and, and talk about the issues of the day that are impacting them and not just focusing on Donald Trump's legal baggage. 
Well, to your credit, I mean, you have continued to be candid, whether it was just light booze or, or however you want to characterize it, uh, out there on the trail about Trump and your concerns about him and your views. And I think this is still a political campaign, right, of many of which you've run. So the question I have for you is, for Republicans, is the most effective argument against Trump that he's unelectable in the general election, given all the charges he's facing? Or is it more of a moral argument that Republicans should be making, um, that he's somebody who shouldn't be considered given he's been indicted four times. What have you found to be more effective? Well, the one thing I know is not affected is kissing his butt, like many of my other opponents are doing. Um, the fact, you know, I free advice to 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 the other candidates. It's, it, Donald Trump is leading in the polls, and he's your opponent. And kissing his butt is not going to help you. Is not going to help you win. Um, I, I think a mix of those arguments matter. Um, here's what we're learning: there's there's a good chunk of people that are going to vote for Donald. Never going to vote for for Donald Trump. And there's folks that like Donald Trump, voted for mm-hmm. him twice, um, li- still like him as a person, and don't think he has a chance in a rematch against against Joe Biden. Uh, the, the fact that if if the GOP puts up a Donald Trump as a nominee, Joe Biden will win four more years of, of office. And I think people are recognizing that. And, and what I'd also remind folks is that the voting doesn't start for about 24 more weeks. Um, a lot can change between now and then. And, and the fact that Donald Trump is afraid to go on the debate stage and answer for being a proven loser. And the last time he won was in 2016. Um, he's not, he doesn't want to have to defend his, his, his poor record. He doesn't want to have to defend that all of these issues he's dealing with, these legal issues are self-inflicted wounds. He doesn't want to have to have to defend that. And that's what I'm looking forward uh, to talking about, not only his problems, but articulating what the GOP needs be doing so that we uh, prevent a trend that has been happening for the last 20 years, and that's losing the general election popular vote. I wanted to ask you about, uh, you do have a national security background, uh, and there have been a lot said about Ukraine uh, by a number of candidates um, in recent weeks, and specifically Vivek Ramaswamy um, in a interview recently, he has been steadily climbing the polls, I should note, but he recently said that he would not he would make a commitment that you, he would recommend making a commitment that Ukraine cannot join NATO in order to re- end this war. I wanted to get your thoughts on that, given your background. Well, when it comes to Vivek, there's a saying we got in Texas, it's all hat, no cattle. Um, this, I, I, to me, someone who's running to be the commander in chief, the leader of the free world, to think that it's okay uh, to negotiate with a war criminal like Vladimir Putin is, is absolutely insane to me. Uh, it, the, the fact that we should be supporting our friends, uh, not our enemies. And unfortunately, there's been a number of presidents over the last decade that's always tried to reset uh, the agenda with 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 Vladimir Putin. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. We should be doing everything we can to support the Ukrainians to win this war. And my definition of winning this war is pushing the Russians out of all of Ukraine to include Crimea and the Donbass. And anybody who is saying anything else to me um, is just it, it, it's unacceptable, especially uh, you know, when we win this, we should also be making sure the Ukrainians join NATO um, immediately. They're going to be one of the, the biggest uh, militaries and, and experienced militaries in the region. Um, and, and we should be having them as, as part of NATO. We should be growing the alliance as, as much as we can. And, and it's, un, it's unfortunate that someone um, that is running for president, running for, for commander in chief, uh, believes those things. 
You said something in a recent podcast interview with Kara Swisher that I found very endearing. Uh, you, you said you were pretty awkward growing up. I was also pretty awkward growing up, I think specifically in high school. Um, you said yeah. you had a speech impediment. How, how did you overcome all of that? And, and what would you tell uh, people who were maybe a young Will Heard about how to overcome that and kind of reach goals as you have really tried to pursue? No, I appreciate the offer. Not only was it a speech impediment, I had messed up teeth. My head's been this size since I was four years old. In the fifth grade, I wore a size 14 shoe. Um, it, it was pretty awkward, and I got made fun of and bullied. Uh, at least back when I was in school, the bullying stopped at, at 345 when school was over. And now with social media, it's even tougher. Um, but what I would tell people is exactly what, what my mother uh, told me. May she rest in peace. It doesn't matter what other people think about you. It only matters uh, about what your loved ones think about you and what you think about yourself. And it gets better. Now I'm six foot three, uh, 240 pounds. I know the CIA kick. Nobody messes with me. Nobody messes with me now. Uh, but it gets better. I'm um, have a PMA, a positive mental attitude and don't, ca don't care about what those other people think. Cause when you stop caring, they stop bullying you. And, and that's something I, I thank God I learned, um, at a young age. Well, from one awkward high schooler to another, I think you have proven uh, many of the bullies <laughs> wrong. So that is always good news. Former Congressman Will Hurd, thank you very much for your time today. We're coming right back after a quick break. Stay with us. I want to end the show with a quick note about a guest we'll have on next Sunday. New Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu will join me to recap the first Republican debate coming up on Wednesday and talk about everything else going on in his party. That does it for me this hour, but there's just too much to talk about today to go home, which is why we have a special live hour coming up tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Some of my favorite minds in politics will be here to preview the debate, talk about the state of the GOP race, and discuss a front runner who's going to turn himself into the Fulton County Jail this week. That's a sentence I never thought I'd hear myself say, but here we are in 2023.